It is good to see you on this holiday weekend. Not everybody is traveling. That's awesome. And if you brought your Bible with you, please turn with me to the book of Esther. We're going to be in chapter 4. If you're using a mobile device, well, you might just like turn off the social media app so you're not distracted. Because for the next 45 minutes, we are going to be studying the Word of God. And it's one of the most important things we can do individually and corporately when we gather together because the Word of God is the power unto salvation and it's also the power unto, unto sanctification, our growth in godliness. So, one of the most convicting things that Jesus said was to a group of religious leaders and they had laid out to him this big life scenario and they had these suppositions and Jesus says to him directly you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God and he went on to expound a single verse from the Old Testament and he showed them how their lack of careful attention and understanding had led them to wrong conclusions and wrong decisions in life. And so we strive to understand and apply the word of God. But we can't do that in our own strength. It requires God's power working through his word in our lives. And so let's just open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we Open up your word. God, I pray that you would open our eyes so we could see what you've written to us. And open our minds so that we can understand it. And God, open our hearts so that we can respond to it in obedience. God, change us this morning by your power working through your word, by your spirit, in the hearts of your people. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing our study in the book of Esther. And the series title is On Purpose. And the theme is God's providence. And we've been saying all along that providence is God working behind the scenes, orchestrating the ordinary things in life to achieve his extraordinary purpose. And so on the surface we see these historical events, but beneath the surface... We see how God is working all of these things together using even the unwanted evil acts of mankind to accomplish his extraordinary purpose. And so with this in mind, the message title this morning is Approaching the Throne. And we'll be in chapter 4, it's verses 1 through 17. And we'll look for three parts. First of all, the morning in verses 1 through 3. And secondly, the messaging in verses 4 through 14. And finally, the mobilizing in verses 15 through 17. So before we dive in, let's just do a quick recap of what we covered last time in chapter 3. Xerxes, king of Persia, honored a man named Haman. And Haman was an Agagite. He was a descendant of the Amalekite nation. And the Amalekites were the sworn enemies of God because 900 years prior, as they're moving across the desert into the promised land, the Amalekites attacked them unprovoked. 
and slaughtered many of the Israelites. Now, years later, God told the King Saul, the first king of the Israel nation, to destroy them completely. But Saul disobeyed God, and he spared some of them. And so now Haman, a descendant of Agag, Agag is, uh, been, has been raised to a position where the king wants to honor him. And everybody knelt down before Agag except Mordecai. He said, I won't do it, knowing that this man and his people have opposed the Lord at every turn. So when Haman learned that Mordecai wouldn't bow down, it says he was enraged. And he wasn't satisfied just to kill Mordecai. He wanted to kill every single Jew, man, woman, child throughout the nation and, and take all of, all of their possessions. And so he convinces Xerxes to authorize an edict. And that edict would kill, destroy, and annihilate all of them throughout the land, young and old, women and children, and to plunder their goods. And so this would be, on, be done on a specific day that was set. And then this edict was translated into as many as 30 different languages and sent by courier all over this empire. But what Xerxes also did unknowingly is he signed the death warrant for his own Queen Esther. He didn't know that she was Jewish. And remember that once issued, a king's edict cannot be repealed. So this edict went out, and it seems that the fate of all of the Jewish people is sealed. And so this is where we pick it up in, in chapter 4. And we want to look first at the morning in the first three verses. And it says, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lie in, lay in sackcloth and ashes. So, Mordecai learns about this edict, but he learns more than just what the edict said. Remember, he worked in the palace, the citadel. He had inside contacts. In a few minutes, we'll see in verse 16 that he even learned the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. So he would have known that he was the trigger for this act of genocide. Now, I wonder what sense of responsibility he must have felt for that. Maybe he was tempted to think, if only I would have just bowed down to this scoundrel, none of this would happen. What he did wasn't wrong, but the consequences of it extend way beyond himself. I mean, it's one thing to do something that costs us our own life. But what if we did something that costs not only our own life, but the life of every one of our loved ones, our family, every single member of our nationality, our nation, would be put to death because of something we did. Can you imagine the pain that that would bring, the anguish? 
And so in verse 1, it says, He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. Well, this is a statue. It's in Had Hashanah Biblical Garden, just outside of Jerusalem. It's not an old statue, but it shows the grief of a prophet who's tearing his clothes and he's wailing bitterly. This thing of tearing one's clothes, it was a sign of mourning. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Reuben tore his clothes when he returned to the cistern and found that his brother Joseph had been taken away. And right after that, it says that Jacob, his father, tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. Even in the New Testament, Paul and Barnabas tore their clothes when the people of Lystra began to worship them rather than worship God. So Mordecai, he tears his clothes in his grief and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. These two were symbols of grief and mourning. And sometimes they were also symbols of repentance. But here it's mourning. It was a way of saying, I'm hurting or I'm broken in the case of repentance. This sackcloth, it was a coarse material, itchy no doubt. It was used for making sacks. I think the closest thing we have to it is like burlap today. And we use it to make gunny sacks. And so imagine wearing only burlap. It would be miserable. And that's the point. That's the whole point. It communicated that a person was miserable on the inside. Like baptism, it was an outward symbol of something happening on the inside. So Mordecai tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and it says he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Have you ever hurt so badly that you wailed loudly and bitterly? I was trying to think. Maybe as a young man I can think of something, but it's just not something we see much, especially men. We try to stuff emotions, but... Mordecai, it was just this symbol of his agony and his grief. It shows the depth of his pain. And it wasn't a private mourning, it was public. He went out into the city. Well, I want to go back to a map of Susa for a moment. And so far, most of the events we've been reading about have been in this 300-acre area of the citadel, the palace complex. And you see there the king's gate, uh, which is the entrance to the palace complex. We talked about that last time. Well, surrounding this palace is an area known as the Royal City. And this is where many of the nobles and people working in the citadel lived in the Royal City. And it was elevated on an embankment that they built up by hand and surrounded with mud bricks. So it sat 40, 60 feet above the rest of the land. And, and it's in this royal city that Mordecai probably lived. And then just to complete the layout, this area to the east, it's a much larger area. It's known as the lower city, or some archaeologists have named it the artisan city because that's where the workers who built the palace lived, in the lower city. And then separating these two areas, the royal city and the lower city, was a canal known as the Ulai Canal. 
And I found it fascinating that this canal is mentioned in the book of Daniel. Let me read you Daniel chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. It says, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. This was his second vision. He said, In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. So that's this canal that runs between the royal city and the, the lower city. And so here's a picture. This is the best one I could find of it today. You can, the royal city is up on the embankment there. The lower city off to the east. And then there's this canal that runs around between them. And the, the stuff in the foreground, that's just, a, just like a, a, a wall along the road where this was taken. It was really hard to find pictures because this is in modern day Iran. But nonetheless, this is what it looked like. And so Mordecai leaves his home and he goes out into the city wearing this burlap and ashes. And it says in verse 2, but he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. So there was a restriction on this. So Mordecai could not go through the gate and into the palace complex. And I don't know that he intended to. He was mourning there in the city. Now back on our map, he would have had to stop somewhere near the moat, near the gate that leads across the moat and into the city. And, and uh, we're going to see more about this in verse 6. So here's our city layout. I thought it'd be kind of fun to see what it looks like today. I spent way too much time on this, but <laughs> I took a satellite image and I overlaid it and here's what we get. This is the city of Susa surrounded now by the Iranian city of Shush. And so although it's all built up around it, the site is protected and you can still pretty much see all of the features, the embankment with the royal city, the foundations of the palace and, and all of that complex. The lower city, though, is pretty much untouched by archaeologists. Who knows what kind of treasures are waiting there to be discovered? So, this then takes us to verse 3, where it says, In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lie in sackcloth and ashes. So remember this territory is 3,300 miles across, 127 provinces from Egypt all the way to India. And so just to kind of get a sense of how many people are impacted, in the west it would extend all the way to Elephantine Island, which is in the middle of the Nile River in Egypt. And there was a sizable Jewish community that had fled there during the destruction of Jerusalem. We've talked about that before. They even built kind of a secondary temple there to worship. It would have included Israel itself. And the city of Jerusalem, the old city of David, where 55,000 Jews had already returned under Zerubbabel and Ezra some years earlier. And then to the east, it would extend all the way to Babylon, Susa, and Persepolis, all throughout the Persian kingdom as far as the Indus River in, in India. 
And so most of the Jews were still living in the Persian kingdom. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Jewish people across thousands of miles. And they all would be destroyed by this, this irreversible edict. And so naturally, all over this province, the Jewish people are mourning. And they're doing it for a good reason. So that's the morning. Let's look at the messaging, uh, beginning in verse 14. It says, when Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Well, what unfolds over the next several verses is this messaging back and forth between Esther and Mordecai. It's kind of like, like Snapshot, Snapchat, only rather than using a mobile app, she's using a eunuch. I guess you could call it Snipchat. Yeah, no, it's bad. I can't take full credit for that. I was... I was studying last night, and I told my son Nathan, I said, I, I need the name for an ancient messaging app that uses a eunuch. And so I started reading the current day app names, and as soon as I read Snapchat, it took him like two seconds to come back with Snipchat. <laughs> this is the kind of conversation that goes on inside the Sommerfeld household. <laughs> By the way, Nathan was... Uh, he was accepted last week into the Moody Bible Institute, where he'll be going. Yeah. They have no idea what they're in for. <laughs> in a good way. In a good way. Well, here's our messaging. In verse 4, Esther clearly hasn't heard about the edict. Life in the palace must have isolated her from a lot of what was going on out in the, in the city around her and across the kingdom. And so she did hear about the news of Mordecai, though, and not knowing the reason for his mourning, she sends him out these clothes. Well, here's a, a glazed brick, uh, like mosaic, that was unearthed at the king's gate in Susa. This thing weighs like 1,200 pounds. And it shows one of the guards in Susa. And one of the things you can see is the elaborate, ornate, brightly colored clothing that they wore. And so Mordecai worked as an official in the gate. He, I don't know that he was a guard, but he was an official there. And he would have been wearing something similar to this. And so this is probably what these clothes looked like that Esther sent out to him. She was probably hoping that he put these on so he could come through the gate into the palace and tell her what the problem is. But he refused. He wanted to continue mourning and wearing the sackcloth. And so Esther sends Hathach, the eunuch, out to find out what was troubling him. And then here the messaging begins. It says in verse 6, So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And now this verse gives us more details about where Mordecai was. He was in the open square of the city. And it says it's in front of the king's gate. Well, going back to our map for a moment, you have the king's gate there, and here's where this city square is. It's, all of this was unearthed in 1970, the whole city gate. 
Um, this city square would have been about half the size of a football field. And so here's a picture that we looked at last week. The palace is way in the distance. Outlined in blue is the king's gate and the dry moat. And look what's right there, the city square. You can see it in this picture. This is where Mordecai was mourning. And here's another view from the other side. And again, shaded in blue is the foundation of the king's gate. This thing is 140 feet wide and 100 feet deep. Can you see those two little people there? You see how small they are next to this enormous gate complex. And then across the dry moat, what's there but shaded in red? The city square. That's where it is. It's exactly as the text describes. And again, the archaeology just continues to attest to the accuracy of the Bible in marvelous detail. And we see that throughout the book of Esther. So, Hathach arrives, and Mordecai told him everything that happened to him, verse 7, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Again, he had all of this information. He knew that Haman was behind this and that he had offered a bribe. He also knew that it was because of his unwillingness to bow down. And all of this he passed along to Hathach. And then in verse 8, he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So the, the fact that Mordecai even had a copy of this edict, again, says that he was closely connected to the people in the palace. And so he sends this along, but along with it, he sends instructions for Esther. He wants her to go to the king and beg the king for mercy for her people. Remember, up to this point, Esther had been very submissive to everything that Mordecai, her adopted father, had told her to do. So Mordecai hits the send button, and then in verse 9, it says, Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he will be put to death. The only exception is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and to spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now, the, the king would sit in the throne room. But here in this passage, the law in Persia said that no person may approach him in the inner court unless they are summoned. And so this is where the archaeology gets really fascinating. Let's go back to that map again. This is a map of the palace itself. And the text mentions the inner court. So I've highlighted it here in red. And then beneath that, you see the throne room in blue. And do you notice that there's a passageway that leads from the inner court down to the throne room? 
This is why no one could approach the king in the inner court because it was the passageway to the throne room where he'd be seated. They could see him from there. They could take a shot at him. So now, here's a picture standing in the inner court. Look, you can still see the pavers there. And it's looking down the hallway. And this is King Xerxes' throne room. It's still there. Verse 11, this is why verse 11 says, no man or woman could approach him in the inner court. And then here's a picture of the throne room itself. How cool is that? And they know this is the throne room because they found two marble inscriptions. See the, the little walls at the passageway going into the room? The wall on the left had an inscription written in Babylonian. And the wall on the right had one written in the Elamite language. And these confirm that this would have been the throne room of King Xerxes. And so it's this very passageway that Esther would have gone through in her final approach to the throne of King Xerxes. And again, it's exactly as the Bible describes it. Now that might not look like too impressive of a palace with its mud bricks and dirt. But this is 2,500 years later. And it's been sitting under the ground and outdoors. So just to remind you, this is a reconstruction of, uh, of the harem of Xerxes and the sister palace in Persepolis. And you can see how beautiful it was. Well, that's just a taste of what this throne room would have looked like. It would have been even more extravagant, more opulent. And, and Esther also says in verse 11 that there's only one exception to death, and that is for the king to extend the golden scepter and spare the person's life. And so here's a huge stone relief that was carved into the stairway at the palace in Persepolis. Again, they had four capitals and four different palaces. This palace was a lot like the one in Susa, but it was much better preserved. And so in this, you see King Darius sitting on the throne. And behind him, it's believed, is the then Prince Xerxes. And look what's in Darius's hand. It's a, it's a scepter. It was a long, slender scepter. It wasn't quite like the kind of thing that like, maybe the, the monarchies would, would hold today. It was a long, slender scepter. And unless he extended that scepter toward the person approaching them uninvited, that person would be immediately put to death. So Esther continues in verse 11. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now, it may have been about 30 days since this edict was issued. They had to first decide the wording, and then they had to translate it into these 30 different languages. Some of it was written on papyrus or leather, but the cuneiform languages had to be written with a stylus in clay brick, and then that had to be dried, and then it had to be sent as much as 1,500 miles in all directions extending out from Susa. So it would have taken some time for the couriers to deliver this edict to all of the passages. So here Esther may be wondering if the king already found out that she's a Jew and if maybe she had fallen out of favor with the king because it's been 30 days and he hasn't called her in. So 
this would add to the sense of danger in approaching the king. Well, in verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you, of all, you alone of all the Jews will escape. And then comes the most well-known words in the book of Esther, verse 14. It says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. We probably, you probably know those words well. They're beautiful words. Here's what's going on. Long before this edict was issued and all of the Jews were threatened, God was positioning his people in exactly the right places at exactly the right time. He raised up a Jewish orphan girl Hadassah, Persian name Esther. He plays Mordecai in just the right places at just the right time, along with Esther. And Esther is raised up to become the queen of Persia. God was behind that. He was providentially orchestrating all of that. You could say he did it on purpose. He did it for a purpose. But we also saw in chapter 2 that when God blesses us, it's seldom, if ever, just about us. He desires to bless others through us. And so Mordecai alludes to this when he says, Who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. In other words, God has a purpose for you being there, Esther. Don't miss that purpose. So how has God prepared you for such a time as this? How has he blessed you? What knowledge, insight, spiritual gifts has he given you that he wants you to use for a purpose? He's given you all those things on purpose. So what is this purpose for you? What does he want you to do at such a time as this? And boy, we live in interesting times, don't we? We all need to just carefully consider that. And verse 14 acknowledges something else that's really important. It acknowledges both the free will of mankind and God's sovereignty. And they are not in conflict with one another. Look at what verse 14 says. It says, for if you remain silent at this time. That's acknowledging that Esther has free will. She had a choice. God wasn't forcing her to do this. She had a choice. She could or she could not. But look what else it says. It says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. In other words, God's purpose will stand. You're not going to thwart his purpose. He'll raise up someone else to get the job done. If you don't do what God has placed you there to do. But it says she and her family would perish. They would suffer the consequences of disobedience. But God would raise someone else up to get the job done. I don't know about you, but I know there's been times in my life where God has called me to do something. And I didn't do it. For whatever reason, I wasn't obedient to his call, to his will. 
Now, some might say, but God is sovereign, Paul, and if he really wanted you to do it, he would have made you do it. So the fact that you didn't do it is evidence that it wasn't his will. That's her view of God's sovereignty, as if it, it reduces us to automatons, robots that only do what God tells us to do, and we can't control it. It takes away the whole idea of the free will of man. But I just don't think that's the case. God is sovereign, meaning he is in control ultimately of what happens. Sovereignty, that's like a political term, remember? Dan talked about the, the political implications of the gospel. Political words like kingdom and king and, and grace and victory and sovereignty. It means the king is ultimately in control of his nation, but the people can still do stuff within that nation. I, I like to use the illustration of a great ocean liner sailing toward a destination. The passengers on board are free to get up and move around and decide what they're going to do. They can do things up to a point, but none of what they do is going to change the fact that that ship is sailing toward a destination. It will arrive there. That's the sovereignty of God. See, the captain is in control of the ship. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that he forces or causes every little thing that we do in such a way that we're just robots. No, we have free will. But his sovereignty does mean that he controls the outcome. He knows all things, including our choices, and he will not allow our choices, good or bad, to thwart his purpose. And this is why Mordecai can say with confidence, if you remain silent at this time, Esther, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family will perish, and who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. See, God in his sovereignty extends us free will. And we can exercise that. But it calls us to be obedient, to seek him and learn what his will is and to follow after that will. So, that's the messaging, the snip chat going back and forth between Esther and Mordecai via this eunuch. But now we come to what's probably the most important part of the text, and it's the mobilizing in verses 15 through 17. Oops, I left something out. I like to say it this way. You can oppose the will of God, but you will not thwart the purpose of God or the plan of God. You can oppose his will, but his purpose will stand. You won't thwart the plan of God. So, demobilizing. There it is, verses 15 through 17 is what that should say. Verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai via Snapchat. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Well, King Xerxes has ordered or authorized this irreversible edict, and death seems unavoidable 
for Esther and for every one of the Jewish people. So what is her first response to this? It's fasting and prayer. She tells Mordecai, gather all the Jews in Susa and fast for three days. And I like what else she says. She says, I and my maids will fast as you do. Well, this tells me that she had some level of spiritual influence over the people working in the palace. She had apparently shared news about God with them. Why else would they pray? If they weren't really, you know, if they didn't really believe in God, it'd be pointless to have them utter some kind of prayer. But she says, I and my maids will do the same. I think that's a beautiful thing. I think Esther and her character radiated out anywhere she went. So she turns to fasting and prayer. We've all heard the expression quick on our feet, right? It refers to being able to think quickly and intelligently, especially in a dire situation. It's not a bad thing to be quick on your feet, but I've got a different phrase for you. What I think is more important is to be quick on your knees. We need to be quick on our knees, quick to go to the Lord in prayer. When we encounter the events of life, whether they're good things or bad things, our first and our frequent response should be prayer. We need to be quick on our knees. Esther was. God said in 2 Chronicles 7.14, famous passage, if my people, let's just New Testamentize that, if my church, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Boy, our land is broken, isn't it? This is a call to us as the church to call out to the Lord in prayer. What if we mourned? What if we mourned for our nation? For the things going on? Yeah, there were some victories, I think, in the Supreme Court this week. But boy, that's only going to fire up the opposition. It's not the end of it all. We, By the way, we're going to be starting a new prayer initiative in September. Just like we did last year. Where we'll all, you can order a book. And we're going to all work through it together week by week. As we grow together in this discipline of prayer. And as we encourage one another. It'll be a church-wide initiative. So watch for that. Now the Jews, it says, were fasting. I don't know, but fasting seems to be a, a lost discipline in the church today. You just don't see or hear of it much, but it's mentioned in the Bible. In fact, I, I think it's mentioned like 77 times in the Bible. Baptism that we talked about, 75. It's obviously pretty important, and it's not just in the Old Testament. Jesus fasted. When the early church was selecting its first missionaries, they did so by prayer and fasting, Acts 13. When the apostles appointed elders in all these church plants, they did so by prayer and fasting, Acts 14. So the purpose of fasting is not to manipulate God to get our will done. Rather, the purpose of fasting is to humble ourselves before God and to seek his will and direction. How does that work? Well, in our day and age, we're not used to denying hardly any pleasure, especially food, right? We, we're more into feasting than fasting. 
But fasting requires us to deny our own appetites and our fleshly desires. And this puts us in a better position to hear and accept God's desire for us. That's what fasting is about. I think it's a discipline that we need to return to. We, maybe we have a collective church fast event this fall as well. But this is what the Jews insisted. This is what the Lord, this is what the apostles in the early church did as well. They fasted and prayed. And so Esther says in verse 16, Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther was going to approach the throne of King Xerxes, a dangerous, illegal thing. But where did she start? By approaching the throne of God. See, there's actually two thrones and two, two kings in this passage. There's the throne of Xerxes, king of Persia. But there's also the throne of God, the king of kings. It was dangerous to go before the throne of Xerxes. It was outright lethal. It could cost Esther her life. Yet we as New Testament believers, we can approach the throne of God with grace and confidence. Listen to Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that beautiful? Do you have a need do you have a time of need? Do you need mercy and grace? We get to approach the throne of God. Well, let me ask the same question that I asked when we were studying the book of Nehemiah. Was the enemy that Esther faced spiritual or physical? It was both, wasn't it? On the one hand, it was spiritual. It was Satan working behind the scenes to try and destroy the, the Jewish nation so that there would be no line for the promised Messiah to come, to be the Savior of the world. Ephesians 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It was a spiritual battle. But at the same time, it was physical in that Haman was Satan's instrument, his latest instrument. And so was Esther's approach to this, was her response spiritual or was it physical? It was both. It was both. She fasted and prayed, spiritual. And she prepared to approach King Xerxes. Physical. Now think about some of the battles you face and I face. Maybe you're facing some right now. Consider this. Are they spiritual or are they physical? Chances are they're both. Well, what about if you're facing something as physical as cancer? Doesn't get any more physical than that, right? Could there be a spiritual element to it? There certainly is. 
See, the enemy wants you to become discouraged and think that God doesn't care and that his word isn't true. His promises don't hold. He wants you to turn your back on God. But at the same time, God wants to use that disease to draw us closer to him, to teach us to trust him, to help us keep our eyes on eternity, not on the things we see here in this world. So we can be sure that if God allows cancer to come to us, it's on purpose. He has a purpose for it. And so there is a spiritual battle involved. But it's also a physical battle. So if the battles we face are both spiritual and physical, what kind of weapons, what kind of tools should we use? Spiritual ones and physical ones. Start with the spiritual. We need to be quick on our knees. We need to put on the full armor of God so we can take our stand against the devil's schemes, Ephesians says. I like what President Lincoln said. He said, I've been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of those about me seemed insufficient for the day. And so he went to the throne of God in prayer. Prayer is the most powerful thing we can do because we are in fellowship with the most powerful being anywhere. Dave Boyer always reminds us, much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. It's important to remember that. But here's another thing. All, Esther didn't pray alone. She also mobilized a team of prayer warriors. Look again at verse 16. She says, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. She said, I and my maids will fast as you do. She didn't pray on her own. There's power in prayer. There's power in collective prayer. And if you're newer to Riverside, you might not know that we have something called the prayer alert. You'll find it on our homepage. There's a, a, a prayer button you can click on, and it'll take you to this page. And you can add your email to the list. You can join the prayer alert. You can submit a prayer request. And it'll go through a moderator and go out to all of the people in Riverside who are signed up for this. And they'll be praying for you, and you'll have a chance to pray for them. Now, it's only for our immediate family, our church family and their immediate family because it could be overwhelming. But that's a tool that every one of us in the church should have so we can be mobilized as prayer warriors for the needs of this body and so that this body can be praying for you. So you can submit a prayer request there or you can just email it to prayeralert at rccstc.org. We need to pray. But don't stop there. Esther didn't just pray. And I know that sounds terrible. She didn't just pray. She prayed and then she prepared to take action. She didn't not pray. She prayed, but she didn't just pray. Nehemiah did the same thing. He was facing an armed enemy. And so it says that they prayed and posted a guard day and night. They prayed, spiritual. They posted a guard, physical. They approached the throne of God and then they prepared for action. So we need to pray and prepare 
for action. So if we suspect that we're seriously ill, it's the first thing we should do. Pray. But don't just pray. Call a doctor. Get an appointment. God often works through human agency in answering our prayers. What if you're unemployed? You need a job. Pray first. But don't stop there. Update your resume. Make some contacts. Fill out some applications. But pray first. Approach the throne of grace with confidence and God will help you with mercy and grace in your time of need. So it's a principle we see here in Esther. We saw it in Nehemiah. It's actually throughout the Bible. And then Esther said, and if I perish, I perish. You know what? She counted the cost. She, like Mordecai, was prepared to take a stand for what was right. She counted the cost. God calls us to do that too. Sometimes standing for what is right can be a lonely place. It was for Mordecai. It was for Esther too. I saw in the news this last week that every one of the 30 Major League Baseball teams is hosting a Pride Night this year to celebrate and support LGBTQ plus culture. Only one team will not. Not the Cubs. Sorry, David, it's not the Yankees. They had three nights. <laughs> they outdid themselves. The only team that did not is the Texas Rangers. And you know what? They've taken a lot of heat for it, too. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for equal rights. But to force people to accept and to endorse and to even celebrate something that is sinful is wrong. And I'm thankful that at least one team was willing to stand up for that. Standing for what is right can be a lonely place. Where might God be calling you or me to take a stand on such a day, such a time as this? Even if you're the only one. And how will you approach it? You know, my hope is that you'll approach the King of Kings on his throne first. And you'll pray and fast and discern his will and then prepare to take that stand, to take action. I've seen a number of people in this church body take a stand all by themselves for what is right, even at great material cost to themselves. And, and it was right and God honored that and blessed that. So, it can be a lonely place. But Esther was prepared to do what was right, even if it cost her her life. And then finally, verse 17 wraps up. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. He did it. They began to pray, and we're going to see the result of that in the chapters that follow. Well, let's just wrap this up by recapping a few key points. We see once again that the Bible is an accurate and historical account. Every single word of it is true. The archaeological evidence attests to this again and again. And I just want you to know you can trust the word of God. It's not only true for the things that happened in the past. It's true for the things that will happen in the future. We're told what's going to happen in the future so we can make changes in the present. So we can be prepared. So it's accurate. Secondly, God is provident. It's the ongoing theme of the book. 
Even when we don't see or acknowledge him, he's constantly working behind the scenes. And scripture says he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.11. A question, how has God prepared you for such a time as this? 2023, United States of America. He places us exactly where he wants us. And he equips us and he blesses us and he does it on purpose. He does it for a reason. So what might God be wanting to do through you? That's something we should each go away considering. You don't have to do it. You can oppose the will of God, but you will not thwart the plan of God. His purpose will stand. The ship will arrive at its destination. The question is, will you be blessed through your obedience to God? In every situation, we need to be quick on our knees, turning to the Lord in prayer. It should be our first and our frequent response. Much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. Consider also the discipline of fasting so that you can seek God's will and his direction and hear that clearly. And then finally, the battles that we face are both spiritual and physical, and so should be our response. So we need to pray first, but don't just pray. Prepare for action as the Lord leads us through prayer. So my hope is that our hearts, again, would be open and that we would allow God to shape us and change us in all of these areas by his power and through his word. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you've shown us again and again that we can trust in you. We can, and more than that, God, we can rest in you because you're good. It's your very nature, and you desire only good things for us. And what's more, God, you have the power to bring about those things in each of our lives. And so, God, I thank you that we can approach your throne of grace with confidence. And we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need every time and for every need. And so, God, I thank you. And I thank you for Jesus who made it possible for us to do this. Not just to approach you, but to become your children. To be seated at your table. To be under your loving care. To be recipients of a great inheritance. Because of what he did. His death and his resurrection. And so God, give us each power to do all that you want us to do. Your will, your purpose in our lives. God, help us to do it for your kingdom and for your glory. And so we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.